here's an abstract model of how we should think about this, which is fascinating, but is rarely how people really learn. Hi, this is the Bring a Brick podcast, interviewing professionals from around the world who use improvisation in their work and in their life. I'm your host, John Cooper. My guest today is Richard Pascoe. Richard has a keen interest in presentation skills and how people learn in commercial settings. He worked for Procter & Gamble for 17 years, looking at the science of how people process information and learn to learning about what motivates people to buy in a commercial setting. He's now the founder of his own company, Making Presentations, and he works with Paul Z. Jackson from the Applied Improvisation Network, training in advanced presentation skills. Hello, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. It's great. It's good to, uh, it's good to have you on. Uh, so, okay, so you've got... Um, 17 years with Procter and Gamble they like they that's a big company isn't it they're a big a very big bunch of guys there big big is the word i mean gloriously big um and gloriously old actually it's uh, a couple of um i think they were candle makers british guy i think a couple of british guys and uh, over in cincinnati as well and they um their wives i think were sisters something like that 178 years ago and they formed this company Procter and Gamble um i won't give you the full history but they started making soaps Right. Um, which today, you know, Ariel Bold is them, but also lots of hair care products. Gillette is them. It's it's a company of a huge number of brands, which you will have heard of from a company you may well not have done so. But it's old, huge, American and glorious. I'm aware of them, but I've never been able to kind of quantify or qualify exactly what they do because it seems so big and broad and massive in terms of, of what they are. So in amongst all that giganticness of Procter & Gamble, how did you find your niche? So, um, I mean, actually, I'll give you the story I give people often in my training as I'm yeah. setting things up. So I joined P&G, I mean, I did an internship, but I joined them properly 18 years ago now, pretty much the day. Um, and I started off in sales, um, working with big retailers in the UK. It's a classic commercial role. Mm-hmm. After a number of years, I moved into market research and something called category management as well, doing a lot of shopper research stuff. Less commercial, but still business supporting. Um, uh, then after about another five years after that, so 10 years in the company, I moved into a learning and development area. But at a corporate level, global level, um, so non-commercial, but still in a big company and this is possibly sending people to sleep. But the interesting part through all of it, right from the outset, was um, the thing I noticed early on in this glorious company full of these charismatic, brilliant people, was that these charismatic, brilliant people, for some reason, became dull when they stood up and did business presentations. Um, so early on in my career, I think like anybody, actually, I was trying to work out what my niche was, and what maybe not what my calling was, but what made me different, because... In a big company like P&G, it's a great place to be and it's a great place to learn. Yeah. But it's not an easy place to um, stand out or feel good about what you're doing because you're surrounded by very, very capable, uh, often ambitious people doing great work. Yes. But the bit I found that I could help on was presentation skills because even these brilliant people would stand up and they'd just be a bit dull and a bit safe. and. I'd always done stuff outside of work and was starting to develop a real interest in performance more broadly and started started to, well, I got challenged by a 
colleague of mine in PNG, I'd spent a little while commenting on or complaining about the fact that presentation skills seemed really dull in the company, and this was ridiculous. We should do something about it. And he, um, very guy called Jonathan Brown, um, very wisely said, stop complaining, stop going on about this. You clearly have some interest. Um, do something. And he chucked a book at me, um, The Inspirational Trainer, um, which I'm still on my bookshelf in front of me, uh, by the wonderful Paul... I would say Paul Z. Jackson. I know we should probably should say Paul Z. Jackson, but I'm British, so I'll say Paul Z. Jackson, um, who many people who listen to this podcast will know as, you know, a real expert in impro. Yeah. And thus started this longer arc of stuff, which we'll probably talk about. But I read his book. I wrote to the guy. I met Paul in a very dark, dingy um, evening in the near Birmingham at some service station, and thus started a working relationship and a collaboration, taking his just brilliant training stuff and real heartfelt belief in the power of improvisation at the core of training and started me off working more and more inside PNG doing presentation skills. Okay. So you asked me what formed my niche. It was sort of that. It was me noticing something in the company that was the one thing I did go, heck, I do that better than they do. And Jonathan chucking Paul's book at me, going, go and do something about it. And I found that this was something I could do and have a real impact on and be, you know, get all the fun that's involved with that. Okay. Can we, can we put this into a context of time? Can you give me a kind of a rough ballpark of the year that this was? When, when oh, this was... Um, so I would have read Paul's book. That would have been about 2001. Okay. Maybe 2002. Okay. Um, so early in my career, I was sort of wet behind the ears trying to find my way, um, and I found Paul. Okay. And and was that, I'm, I'm guessing in terms of, I mean, you've got P&G, you've seen you've got all these big charismatic people. How was it viewed when you kind of go, let's give this a go? I mean, one of my things we might talk more about is when, in a big company like P&G, if you say, we want to, I want to do impro, they'll go, well, that's interesting, but why? Yeah. Um, and, and this would be the case even today and certainly back then. And I wasn't consciously going, I am going to do impro. Mm -hmm. What I was going to do was do really, really good advanced presentation skills training for which yeah. Paul had, you know, a great course, which we brought in and started to run. Um, the, the impro bit was just such a core part of the way the course worked. Yeah. So what people experienced was they experienced improvisation. They experienced a flow through the training, which was very fluid and responsive to their needs. Mm -hmm. They experienced um, exercises which involved them creating on the spot and responding to, you know, tips and ideas and subjects and topics, yeah. but a very improvisational element. Through to us absolutely exploring improvisation as a core skill within, you know, how do you interact and respond to your audience you know, mm -hmm. absolutely getting into core principles of improvisation. Yeah. But the, imp the improv was their experience. The improv was their way into understanding powerful ways to present. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was their percolating through it. So what they came out of was going, wow, this is a training just different to almost everything else they'd ever experienced because, you know, it wasn't reliant on PowerPoint. We did, yeah. there was slide, it was two days and there's not a slide in sight. And rather than being told what to do and exercise and practice it, they were sort of so much more involved and interactive as a training style itself. So um, 
even from the beginning, actually, even I, I was aware of improv being something which was powerful within the training course, yeah. and we grew that and over more and more over time. But the company wasn't responding at that point to um, this is improv. It was responding to wow, this is a really successful, growingly successful advanced presentation skills course. And if and part of the credibility of the course was the improv elements in there, yeah. but it wasn't buying improv it was buying an advanced presentation skills course people turning up wasn't they weren't turning up because they'd heard it was full of improv they turned up because and signed up because they'd heard that it was brilliant okay i'm going to draw a parallel because you started out working sales and you you're introducing improv how would it have changed if you'd obviously you are using improv skills and you're aware that the the foundation of it is were you openly using the term improv when you introduced it in, or were you more keen to use uh, some commercial language of presentation skills? Were you wary of the term improv when you brought it on board, or were you perfectly happy to just throw that word out there? Uh, what I learned to do was um, to absolutely use it, but use it in the credibility and of the course rather than the outcome of the course. Okay. I mean, in, in sales and marketing, you you talk when marketing you talk about the the what and the how. Yes. Uh, the danger in improv is, we're, especially we're, when we're doing a, you know, it is what we do. So therefore, when yeah. someone says, "What am I going to get out of this?" It's tempting to reply, "Well, what you get is what I do, which is improv." Yeah, but yeah, yeah. They don't. They're not looking for improv. <laughs> they're looking for. I want to present better, or I need um, greater innovation and creativity skills, or I need better trainer facilitation skills. Great, that's what you want, and that's what I can provide, or in my case, advanced presentation skills. Yeah. The how and the why can come from improv. So when introducing different the course overall or different elements within the course, absolutely I'm bringing improv in, but for credibility. Yes. So one particular section is looking very specifically at um, interaction and helping a group or and individuals start to see the value and the different ways in which you can interact with an audience when presenting mm-hmm. and absolutely how you do that well. Now that's, you know, the, the what we're helping them with is, look, how you interact to get the audience engaged, to get their response, to tailor to their needs, do yeah. all sorts of powerful things. But how we're going to help them do that is we'll bring in the principles of improv. Okay. Improvisers have learned to uh, survive and thrive in highly spontaneous scenarios. They've got things we can learn from. We will go through improv um, experiences from which we can pull principles from which I can help you have greater confidence and ability to interact with your audience to get all the things. So it's that sort of thing. So in, improv isn't the what, it's the look how yeah. and it's the credibility underneath why they should believe the the strength of what we're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, obviously, I, I'm, you know, this this podcast is about improv and I'm promoting the various different ways in which it's used. I think it's important to understand that point that you're making, which other guests have made, but I think you've, you've made it there in a very, very crystal clear way, which is really quite beautiful about how it is the it is the how and it is the why um which is great did you um were you replacing any previous training was there any other kind of training for the presentation skills that was there before you introduced the improv one were you bringing in something fresh and new or 
Yeah, yes, yes is the short answer. Um, and, you know, I then was involved in presentation skills training in the company for 15 years, you know, always on the side. And my day job was always sales or market research or, mm -hmm. or corporate learning and development. But on the side, this was what I did. And I, so yes, and I saw the other types of courses out there over the years because, you know, Paul's for first form course and what I evolved turned into the, company's global advanced presentation skills course mm -hmm. uh, that said so yes they had um and still do have a good foundational you know basic presentation skills course which will give anybody the good foundations it's you know don't put too many words on your slide don't present and while reading the slide with your back to the audience yeah you know gets it just it's you know don't fiddle with change in your pocket it's mm -hmm. it's a bit more than that but it's good foundational stuff yeah, yeah. Company then did certainly, I wasn't, never came across anything which was stretching beyond that. Um, so, so there were sometimes some other courses which formed. And actually, uh, there were some very good things being done more around a, a masterclass sort of structure where the training around presentation skills is, is more getting someone in to do a presentation and getting them to adapt to that, um, with a particular group, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But no, through my time, I was never aware of anything of that nature which had um, got really into more advanced stuff. Yeah. One thing actually you might find interesting, though, one thing that did exist in the company early on was someone formed a, um, a course which was more around facilitation skills. And actually this I did experience very early in my career. And it's one of the reasons why I was so – I became so much more interested in – more improvisational, more spontaneous sort of training structures. Um, and it was a, I mean, it was a one and a half day course on facilitation skills. But what it really was, was yes, it had a selection of principles that we were going through, but really it was multiple activities, all with a very spontaneous improvisational feel. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, uh, you know, it'd be how to facilitate a difficult audience. Well, what they would do is two volunteers would go out of the room be brief some basic information that they need to run and facilitate a meeting and information they need to pass across. But while they're being briefed on that, the rest of the group is being told, okay, you need to pretend to be falling asleep. Uh, you need to disagree with everything uh, that's said. And right. Rich, what you can do, you pretend to be in charge and if you can introduce them, but in a way that makes them uncomfortable. Right. They would come in and, you know, I would just, you know, I one person would start to fall asleep, another person would be ready to disagree to everything, and I stood up and introduced them, deliberately getting their names wrong and generally being, un you know, unhelpful. But that, it was lots of things like that through yes. a, a day and a half, which meant it was just such a rich learning experience and so much fun and so mm -hmm. interesting. Thing, just doing and experiencing rather than because it could be I mean, a lot of training can end up being cerebral you know let's yes. let's down and here's an abstract model of how we should think about this which is yeah. fascinating but is rarely how people really learn mm -hmm. and and you you're, you're saying that you you dealt with a lot of people who were quite charismatic um so did you have any just to play devil's advocate did you have any kind of resistance when you first introduced this, was there anyone coming in and going, I'm not quite sure what this is or why it is, or were they all kind of on board with it? Um, gosh, um, I mean, there's always a certain level of discomfort. And, I'm, you know, we all find that when we're training elements where it is much more improvisational because that takes, you know, they, people, the, the group, the learners, the delegates, they can't just 
sit back and listen. They have to get yes. involved. Yes. You know, many of us have experienced the we're going to do a role play now, and that's sort of people's half. Yeah. Well, group go great, but a lot of the group go what? And but but no, because you don't. Again, you don't stand up and go. We're going to spend you know two days doing improv. Mm-hmm. What is it and why should I do that? You yeah. you just build them in, and um, I, I'm probably going to sound too repetitive going on about how good Paul's basic design was. But what I learned so much from Paul training early on, because we would co-train a lot for the first few years, and I learned many things from him. But part of that was just slowly bringing the improvisational elements in. Yes. From, you know, very first activity. It's it's little things I found just really helped warm people up into being more spontaneous. Like any activity right from the word go – it's not look. We'll go in that order, or it's it's not even who would like to go first. It's look when the moment takes you, step forward and you know do the thing we've asked you to do. Yeah, yeah. Or it's even you know when we're doing quick intro, you know, give us the classic way of opening the day up is you know look throw a couche ball around. When the couche ball comes into your hand, give us your name and one thing you're hoping to get from today. And it's yeah. just little activities like that which just. It feels still feels very accessible. They're not being asked to do anything. They're not being asked to suddenly pretend to be a penguin. Yeah. But they're just getting used to that sense of the group having to uh, keep an eye out for each other, make sure that everybody's had their go, work out who's ready and who isn't ready in a more improv sort of manner. Um, through to as you're getting into the course more, lots of elements where you're getting people to respond and input their thoughts it's not sit there and tell let me tell you stuff it's what do you think about this or here's a picture what do you think that could be yeah. get involved through to once you warm people up through the day and it's remarkably quickly you can do that you know across two full days actually the back end of the second day morning we are doing an exercise where people may well be pretending to be a penguin mm-hmm. uh, but that's fine by then You've got them. By then, they, they've, they've, they've built got, them up. Yeah, they've got it. Yeah. And, and they're not going, I'm doing improv. They're going, I'm exploring, you know, the exercise where we, they may be playing a penguin is the famous It's Tuesday game where, you know, it's a paired exercise where a scene is being created um, what, um, between the two of them. But um, the whole exercise is about exploring emotion because we give each of the pair have two contrasting emotions they've got to portray through this scene being formed and what you know yes it's an improvisation but it's it's a purpose we're we're exploring emotion we're going to explore how well you can evoke emotion in an audience by having a strong emotion yourself we're going to show you can do it by you doing it right let's go you know and you 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 just bring them through and by that point they're, they're thoroughly enjoying pretending to be a penguin or to um, bodyguards outside a club or, or whoever they end up being. The one thing is I'm kind of doing these interviews and speaking to different people about their approaches to how they introduce stuff. I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in how they do the how, if you understand, kind of like we understand that this is the how of why we do it, but it's it's fascinating to see and listen to just how subtle you can bring people on board with this stuff, so that it's, it's almost like um, the level of engagement can be really low, and then you can like gradually ramp it up. Um, and that's the sort of thing I certainly learned, partially through experience and lot working from Paul. Is you know get them improvising early, but don't call it an improvisation. Just do lots of things and build it up. Yeah. And then um, 
I mean, right at the heart of any of these principles is make sure the group, especially as you're getting slightly harder stuff, it's make sure everybody in the room does it. So anything which involves more spontaneous things, everybody, all trainers do it. If you've got some observer or, you know, somebody who's just popped in for half an hour, for whatever reason, everybody does it. And the other piece is make sure it's clear that they don't have to do it. There's no obligation. Look, you know, anything we're going to do, I mean, this, I would often say this, look, you know, we're about to do some exercises here. Look, you know, we're getting into improvisation at this point, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, I'm going to be very clear what I'm asking you to do, but, you know, absolutely step out if you're ever uncomfortable. I almost always share also out of running the course, you know, over 60 times over 15 years across multiple countries, I can remember twice having someone actually back out of an exercise. Right. Um, right. And and they were the more stretch exercises. And normally it was partially language barrier. It was partially someone just not quite feeling comfortable. And that was fine. In each case, that was fine. Yeah. But it, so, you know, it, it always make sure it's clear that people don't have to do it. But then talk with an enthusiasm and a positivity that implies you expect that they almost certainly will. Yeah. And they don't just follow. They just go with you in terms of what you're asking them to do. You've, you've talked there about kind of asking them to bring an emotion in with them and, and you use that in, in the stuff that you're doing. I would assume there are confidence building elements to this in terms of asking people to get engaged. Would you agree with that or do you not think that's part of it? Yes, it does help to build confidence. Though, I've, you know, you can move people much further than you sometimes fear. I, I, it's far more often I get to the end of two days training. Almost always, if I get to the end of two days training or one day's training, I'm getting to the end and thinking, actually, I could have pushed them further. Yes. I, I almost never go, oh, I think I pushed them too far. Right. Now, that, that could be my style and maybe I could do with pushing people further, but almost yeah. always. But this, it's lots of little things. I mean, on this particular It's Tuesday exercise... So it's, you know, got two volunteers. The scenario is they're each given two very contrasting emotions. I don't know, um, fear and, um, joy. And they've each got two separate pairs and they, person A comes in and says it's Tuesday and person B just gets the scene going. But the scene is defined by the audience. So it, you know, who are they? Where are they? And what are they doing? You know, two penguins in the Arctic discussing climate change is a fairly classic sort of yeah, one. Yeah. Um, but when you do that, it's setting it up right. It's it's first of all that you know the two trainers demonstrate it first, mm-hmm. and, and one thing I've found helps is being very very clear with the group that our one may go badly, that this is improvisation, this is or this yeah. is this is more spontaneous. This is an exercise. Some of these will work and some of them won't. Yeah. That's fine. And actually, it's almost it's almost better when ours as the trainers does go slightly awry. It's really good when the process is beautifully shown to them so they're clear what we're asking them to do. Yes. But actually the scene isn't that good and the one, the first one of theirs is even better than ours. And that that sometimes happens in a way which is great. That's, but it's yeah. that, look, this is, we're doing things. It, some of it will work, some of it won't. That's fine, we'll just move on. That's Yeah, that's that's good to see that. Yeah, because you're showing the kind of mechanics of it. Um, just just to pick you up on stuff, because I I mean you're you're touching on stuff that's, that's that's quite close to me and I'm really into as well. Yeah. You know you're teaching those skills and then people are going to use it for solo work effectively if they're giving their own presentations. There's, mm-hmm. there's you're doing group work and then it's going towards solo skills to a degree. Yeah. It's, if it's presentation stuff, um, you talked there about you wish you could push people some more. 
Um, I mean, the the kind of people you have got are people who work within, or the previous people you've had are people within kind of P and G, and then you've worked kind of outside of that more recently. How far do you think you can push people within the boundaries of the kind of workshops you run? Do you think there's a there's a limit because of the equipment that you've been given? I mean, I guess there is a limit to some extent. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying kind of like oh, you should just go in there and push them. I'm just interested in you're there to to add value, and what's the point you add value? I think I'm I'm counterpointing that by because you do this, I do one drop-in public speaking session, which is just a drop-in that anyone can turn up to, and they get up and they speak, and and I I push them because they've decided to be there and no one other than themselves has decided to be there. So I will do little exercise that really push them. And I make no apology for that because I try to put the stand-up comedy element into it. And and when I do that, it's kind of like, okay, I am going to push you. No one's going to die. No one's going to feel bad. And I'll, I I will catch you. There will be a safety net. But then I I you know, and I I think that's probably probably as much to do with me and how I do that. But I'm fascinated when you say you know how far can you push people in terms of what they can get out of it. You know, because you see the the bit that. Um, I think Pat Short goes, he loves to see the bit where the lights come on, where they're doing stuff, and you can see that that, that, that button of engagement where it's kind of like, wow, I just did that. That was a thing. That was amazing. It was funny. People laughed. I was funny. I was engaging. I was wonderful. Where they, they just kind of step that little bit extra outside of their comfort zone. And and, and there's a kind of like, there's a, there's a value there. But it's it's obviously you can't always do that because sometimes you meet with resistance and people are like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking from my own experience here, whether go, what you're doing. And it's kind of like, well, this is what we're doing. Okay, that's fine. But yeah, I, I've probably had different experience. Well, I have had different experiences to you because I've never been part of a, a large company. No, I, I think it's an excellent point. Um, so yes, you, you you certainly vary it a little bit, and absolutely from you know I know your work as well, and you're absolutely right. I'm sure people coming to your sorts of sessions, chosen to be there, they're coming to see a you know a, a successful improviser, improvisational comedian they're sort of expecting, they've got to expect and be open to you pushing them right from the outset. Whereas if I'm in a commercial setting, I mean, certainly it varies a bit. If they, you know, sometimes, especially, you know, if I was training in the UK with a UK audience of people who knew that I was, you know, world-renowned within P&G on this, I could probably push them further more quickly. Sometimes you'd be, I'd be working with a group where some team leader has asked me in to uh-huh. do something and they're there because they've been told yes. to be there. <laughs> yes, they're interested, but then you, you know, you, you warm them up in a slightly different way to get them into, you know, the, a slightly more relaxed, trusting sense. But you just adapt. Yeah. And I certainly, I, my experience in a company like P&G is there is some, I'm not sure there's resistance to, improvisation there's some hesitancy to anything which pushes people out of their comfort zone but once you get into it you know they it absolutely you know they embrace it once you've got them in the room doing things and as long as you handle and facilitate them with care but push them um you know that they it's they really enjoy it because it's why so many of us really like improv is it's fun. It is just, it's a much more engaging, more interesting way to explore and learn things. Also, it's a much more effective way of learning many things, especially when it comes to skills like presentation yeah. skills. But it's more fun, it's more engaging. And once you get them into that, you know, it doesn't matter if they're, uh, you know, a 
introverted accountant or some self-confident salesman or some very you know empath- empathic human-related market researcher. All of them turn into human beings who want yes, to play. Exactly. It's kind of like the, that. The character type is not important. You so you have taught in different countries. Do you have to adapt your style to the culture? So um, I guess I adapt myself slightly, but not a lot. Um, I've trained a lot across Europe and quite a bit in North America, and a little bit one or two other places, but predominantly those. Um, yeah, a little I'll adapt, but not in terms of the exercises. I don't think. I think it's more. Um, I certainly expect them to do the same things. You know, sometimes you'll get a group which is a bit more hierarchical. Um, so it's a little bit more, um, you, 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 you've got to be a bit more respectful, I guess, in a way. Yes. But still, stuff I do, I don't think I would adapt. Uh, the, um, no, I, the, the Americans actually, I generally found, actually them I found out to warm up a little bit more in a strange okay. sort of way. Uh, I don't know why I haven't thought about this before, but actually they're, even though they're a very um, articulate uh, culture was what I was used to. They, they had a very good, you always got a sense that they, something in their education had meant they knew how to stand up and mm-hmm. speak. Uh, I'm not sure they always knew how to stand up and present, but they knew how to stand yes. up and speak. But oddly enough, getting them to do slightly stranger things they were for some reason a little bit more reticent perhaps that may just be the ones I came across whereas in Europe as long as you were respectful to the language barrier because in PNG I was always training in English so sometimes I had to adapt then but little things like anything which was really really spontaneous sometimes what I would do is I remember running it in um, Greece Mm -hmm. once um, and their English was remarkable but some of their people's, their English was remarkable, but still, it would be a real stretch for them to just, you know, uh, make up a presentation on the spot in a very, you know, there's one exercise we do where they're making up a presentation and the audience throws in words and they have to incorporate those words in. So if they're talking about, I don't know, climate change over the last 20 years and making stuff up and we, someone says penguin, they've got to find a way to say the yes. word penguin. That, that, you, that's not easy to do in your non-native yeah. tongue. So if, if if they wanted to, they could do it in their own language. And you know, so they would do it. And a couple of them did. They would do it in Greek. I had no idea what they were saying, but absolutely, you could still see the learning going on. You could feel what they were doing. The group would give them their words. They would complete their activity. There'd be a round of applause and big smiles, and then the next person would go. So I sometimes adapted for language, but. And yes, the mood shifts a little bit in different parts of the world, but, I, but the actual exercise of ultimately what I'm asking them to do doesn't need to change. The way I might facilitate them might shift a little. I may be a bit more direct in some places, a little bit more caring in others. I may be a bit more adaptive in some, but in the end, what I'm asking them to do doesn't need to yeah, shift. Yeah, my brain immediately went to a pun there where you could have said it was all Greek to me, but never mind. Yeah, so I'm fascinated what you said there just about the that you find you had to put a little bit more work in with an American crowd um, because my my experience with the CSE group is that the Americans tend to always be 
just easier and more positive to get on with and it's kind of like maybe I'm being massively stereotypical in that it's just what I've always found um, but I think that m- might be a CSZ thing I don't know um, that's just the, the the experience that I that I've mainly had but it's interesting to hear that to hear that other opinion from the other side related to that and I think speaking it out loud and thinking a bit more I think it's partially the people I was working with often in PNG were people right at the centre of the company and you know the, in Cincinnati quite a traditional place in a company 170 odd years old um, which is a little bit not this is the way it's done but there are ways that things are done and cultures and pieces and someone coming in and expecting them to stretch out of that I'm, they didn't resist I just found them took a little bit more warming up than some others but I you know that that may be a, a coincidence rather than anything okay. broader okay I'm I'm just going to bring you back to um, the, the the group work and the games and stuff that you that you that you do when you're mm. running one of these workshops. Um, do you make the the distinction between group work and solo work? Because if you're working on people giving presentations, that's ultimately going to be an individual activity, uh, as opposed to something you do with somebody else. So do you do you address that at all, or is it? Is it is it part of a is the takeaway what they get that they can then go and, go and use themselves? Oh, um, if I'm, I mean, across the two days, there's deliberately a lot of variance okay. in the sort of exercises you're doing. So some of them are very traditional improv exercises, as we're exploring improvisation as an idea to help them get principles in mind to help them interact with their audience and respond to questions or respond to things going on or adapt their what they're going to cover based on what the audience seems to be finding interesting as we're starting to explore that we literally are you know we're doing improv exercises in a circle one word stories points and words abc games all sorts of things but and but at other times we're doing you know all the way up to it's tuesday a paired activity putting together a scene in front of the audience but we're then doing lots of things which have improv underneath it, but they don't look like improv exercises. They just look like maybe someone coming up to the front and doing a presentation where, yes, it's for them, it is a, a personal experience preparing and then delivering yeah. that. But it's not a collective response experience as we, we deep, debrief on what happened. Um, we look at lots of different structures and after we look at a, like a story or a three or a logic or we look at these different structure types, someone comes forward and spontaneously redoes an, redoes an intro presentation. They've already done it at the beginning of the first day, but they have to. Re- one of them comes up, redoes their intro presentation, but done in this structure we've oh, just explored. So they suddenly have to tell a story or they have to reorganize the information in a logical sequence or they need to just choose three things they're going to talk about. So it's a suddenly stand up and do this, someone individually experiencing putting across information in this new structure but then as a group we debrief what was the reaction for the audience and we so that's you know is it improv is it an exercise who cares it's a good way of experiencing content yeah through to yes there are some things which are much more individual you know and some of it is about personal reflection time and actually this is something i find it's so hard to do as the trainer but again i've got the very wise al paul's voice in the back of my head always going slow down don't rush into the next section have you given them enough time to stop and reflect have you given them a clear activity to work through something to do the stuff we've just learned 
or reconnect back to stuff that we learned three hours ago. But are you giving them time and a process to organize, whether that's on their own or in a little discussion with a partner or you shift things around? So sometimes think on your own, work with a partner, work in a three. We're going to explore this as a group, split into two teams. The more you vary that, and it's classic facilitation mm-hmm. stuff, but just creating different pieces. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that note you've just given on kind of like, is there a gap? That thing you're saying about Paul in the back of your head, give a gap, to, to want, for want of a better metaphor, yeah. the ability to reflect on what's gone before, even in the context of something like a workshop, just to have time enough to, why did we do that? As opposed to kind of, oh God, I must add value right now, let's do the next thing straight away. So it feels like people's time yeah. is being spent doing stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, because you can't see people think, you know, it's that it, and it's it's equally as valuable. That resonates with me massively because I think that's one of my personal Achilles heels in such situations. And it is for everybody. And it, but it links to um, one of the things I've been thinking about recently. So as you and I met at the um, Applied Improvisation Network um, conference back yeah. a few months ago. And one of the things which I, I'll get to the link here. Um, one of the things we're exploring there was the most fundamental principle of yes and. Um, but one of the things I've, I've really been thinking a lot about in terms of presentation skills training, but also more broadly is, you know, you don't just write it as yes and. You write it as yes dot 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 mm-hmm. and. I, there is at that moment, somewhere in the middle, you've got to stop and think. Give give yourself a moment. Now, a lot of improv, spontaneous up in the audience stuff, that can be a nanosecond or half a second. Yeah. But just, you know, yes, you know, the audience needs this. Think, right, and I'm going to do this. Or, yes, there is a question. Yep, I understand the question. Think, okay, this is what I'm going to do with it. But through also to training, you know, yes, I've just completed this section where they needed to learn this. And the next thing I'm going to cover is this, so let's get on with it. No, wait a minute. What's Where's that dot, dot, dot? Yes, we've just finished this. Okay, have they really yeah. had a chance to yeah. internalize? Yeah. Right, is there anything else I need to do? Yes, no, make decisions. Okay, and I'm now going to do this. It's that, it's that dot, dot, dot that I'm finding interesting for yes. myself. But actually, I'm more, I'm starting to explore in training and one-to-one coaching, actually helping a layman audience start to just explore that because they... I do find when you get into improv principles with uh, people who don't talk about it all day like we can, is um, they see it as the yes and yeah. they like. Yes, I've accept something and then and I've got to do something with it. But the thing I find very useful at the moment is just opening up a little gap between the yes and the and so they can stop mm-hmm. and think. Because that's what they're worried about is making terrible decisions. Well, just give yourself give yourself a little bit of space, and there's all sorts of interesting stuff yeah, in there. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's that's a that's a great note. I need to stop saying yes, yes, yes at the end of everything. It's a terrible interview. It's a terrible interview technique to just go yes, yes, yes. But it makes me. But it makes makes me feel good, John. Okay, so I'm fine cool. With it. Um, let's bring us up to date then. Uh, you're now uh, your your own boss. Uh, making presentations is your company where you kind of you're mm-hmm. taking your skills and all the things you've learned and you're going off out into the world uh to kind of just really spread your spread the knowledge that you've got far and wide can you just tell us a little bit more about making presentations so um yeah makingpresentations.co.uk um it's you know i've been very very fortunate that i've been able to you know, find something I've had such a passion for over um, 17 years in a big company like P&G and had so many opportunities to try different aspects out through to the, you know, we've talked a lot about this core two-day advanced presentation skills course, 
but then getting branching off into all sorts of areas around presentation skills, whether it's presenting data or using status games to explore credibility and rapport, whether it's presenting virtually, so on and so forth. So set up on my own to just focus on advanced presentation skills courses um, and training and consulting and coaching. Um, I talk about it being the science and the art of saying things well. Uh, and, you know, within here is... There is a lot of science. Um, I experienced a lot of neuroscience in P&G because a company, it's interested a lot in how people think and how you communicate to people in a brand marketing way and pulled in a lot of aspects of that, building on Paul's original work. So there's a lot of science, and though we haven't talked about the science today, I'd absolutely, you know, we I could happily spend another hour, two hours, three days talking brain science about how people process information and what we can learn about that when presenting. Can you give me an overview of that, just kind of like what that entails? Okay, I can I can touch on it likely, So, but um, it's a much bigger thing yeah. to get into. Um, so, for example, um, one of the most profound... Pr- in, this, in improv, we talk about, you know, yes and being one of the most foundational principles... Um, in, in neuroscience, or certainly behavioral sciences, one of the most profound principles is an idea of brain one and brain two. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is the famous writer on this, but there's lots of others who've talked about this in different terms. But the idea of the brain, brain one and brain two. The brain um, has two fundamental um, states, brain one and brain two. Brain one is the um, autopilot. Mm-hmm. It's intuitive, it's far, it takes very little energy, and it just responds to things based on what it knows already. Uh, Brain two is the pilot. The brain two is the very executive conscious brain, absolutely connecting in, really processing stuff in a much fuller way, and it's much more how it starts to learn new things, engage in new ideas, but it takes a lot of effort for the brain, and the brain is a relatively small amount of your body weight, but I think it's you know, up to about 25%, 30% of the energy. So we calories are all over the place today. The problem today is there's too many calories, but we've evolved from a time when calories yeah. were scarce and you don't want to eat up too many calories thinking. So the brain wants to stay in brain one. But if you're presenting, you don't want it to just stay in brain one because it doesn't learn anything new in brain one. It just re- if, if your message is here's some stuff we believe to be true and it is true, go and do the thing you thought we were going to do, then fine, you can be very brain one, very logical refer to things they know already, very um, automotive, very intuitive but often in presentations we need to inspire someone to think differently, you need to switch brain two on, you need to get the conscious Mm -hmm. brain on, but that takes a bit of a jolt because brain two doesn't want to switch on, so you need to bring in something which will surprise them and make them stop and think. Or you need to bring in something where they're the only way they you got them interested in it, but by making something sound very credible, but you but for them to then pull from it, they've got to work something out themselves. So you get into areas of communication styles, which is about switching on yeah. brain two, getting brain two engaged, convincing the brain it's worth um, listening to and reforming itself around, and then transferring information behind that. So that's a you know, very brief, very classic sort of behavioral sciences, neuroscience look at brain one and brain two. It's, it's bringing in some of those sorts of principles and ideas and applying them into something like where you're presenting, yeah. where fundamentally I have information in my brain and I'm trying to transfer it as new information into your brain. 
well, it's just increasingly interesting science and principles we can learn from and actually help us communicate and present better because as is a lot yeah. of these things, we make lots of intuitive decisions and assumptions about how to present, which are actually that's, wrong. That's, yeah, that, I, I've never heard that before explained, and I can totally understand the parallels about how that would feed back into, you know, in, into how we think and what we do. Um, my, my brain immediately goes to, if, if we engage that part of our brain and we use more calories, we could lose weight by improvising more. Um, <laughs> p- potentially, I don't know. Um, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to kind of just put you on the spot, Richard, with one final question, which is, do you have, a, when you're training, do you have a favourite game that you will rock out with people who are in the room? Do you have a favourite improv game? Um, I, I've got lots I really like, but I'm going to mention one which is gloriously uninspiring and uninteresting, but I love what it does. Um, we always do, almost always do an ABC game. Okay. I mean, this is as much a children's game as an improv game where, it, you know, you're in a circle and, um, you know, we have to come up with a, lit- a category of things, but first person, something beginning with A, then B. So we often do countries. So I'll say Argentina, next person I say Brazil, Chile, so on and so forth. Um, and we're exploring improvisation uh, and spontaneity principles. So why do I like this exercise? This doesn't sound particularly interesting. Uh, what I love is the one of the key learnings you get because um, we do animals, but we also do um, countries. But yeah, we do animals. So there's always this lovely moment with animals because you go around the circle and they're, 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 to some extent they're pre-planning or not. Some of them count ahead and work out they're going to be an E and they'll think elephant and off you go. And some will just wait for mm-hmm. it to come around. But there's a lovely moment where suddenly it becomes yeah. hard because it, you're probably all just quickly thinking about animals A, B, C, but there's the odd letter which is tricky. J is a little tricky, but isn't too bad. You've got Jaguar and things like that. The really tricky one is N. You get to N, and suddenly someone's got to think of an animal beginning with N, and there's this glorious pressure on them to that this should be easy, but they can't think of anything. And there's this lovely moment, um, and why I like the moment is, actually, if you've got the group that those people around the circle who are not planning ahead and are just listening to yeah. what's happening will help. Those who are just focusing on the fact that they're in three times term, uh, they're too along. That means they'll be O and then P. They're thinking, I've got P. What's P? Porcupine. I find I've got porcupine. They're not listening and they can't help the person who's struggling yeah. with N. So there's this lovely moment of hesitation mm-hmm. and this person looking embarrassed, they can't think of one beginning with N. And then someone in the audience will help. And you get this lovely learning that in presenting, we, we worry about being more spontaneous, more improvisational with the group, yeah. with an audience, because we fear as if things will go more wrong. But we get this lovely learning that actually the more spontaneous you are with your audience, the more actually if things do start to go slightly wrong, the audience will help. If you're communicating to them and having more of a literal or figurative conversation, actually it's much more supportive. We worry about being spontaneous, but actually the more spontaneous we are, the better. Uh, I always use a tightrope walking analogy. You you feel as if you're up on the high wire, which is scary, but actually be more spontaneous with your audience. They will be your safety net. It feels scarier, but actually it's safer. And I just love that moment in the game when we get that learning. It reminds me of that like dependence, independence, interdependence, and safety culture. As long as I'm all right, I'm fine. That's kind of no. You're, you're, once you once yeah. you're fine, you can help somebody else because you're all right at that point. 
put your put your gas mask yeah. on and then not gas mask put your oxygen mask on and then put somebody else's oxygen mask on for them yeah helping people out um richard thank you so much for uh coming on the show as with all the podcasts uh notes to richard's website and work will be on the bottom of the page um thanks for coming on the show richard thank you very much for having me For more interviews, visit the bringabrickpodcast.com website. While you're there, you can also sign up for the mailing list and send me your comments and recommendations. And if you like what you've heard, please do rate and review. Every click does help.